Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shri Vigwani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Mia Finkelson. Dr. Finkelson is a family practice physician and medical director at Amwell, which is a physician-owned and operated company delivering care to patients on a secure telehealth platform. I'm looking forward to asking Dr. Finkelson about the surge in telehealth utilization and what impact it's having on the U.S. healthcare system, as well as what the future holds for this technology. So, Dr. Finkelson, thanks for, so much for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So, can you start by telling us a bit more about yourself and how you got into, into medicine and then family practice? Oh, sure. Of course. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, I'm a family physician, um, board certified. And I, I like to think, though, that my first job is being a mom. I'm a mother of three. Fortunately, my youngest graduated from college safely. So I'm at that phase of my career in, in, in motherhood as well. I'm the youngest of six girls. And my mother was actually a physician. She was an endocrinologist and was one of the first female physicians to actually sit for the endocrine medical board. So, you know, I'm always very proud of her. When she raised us, she always raised us to just be, you know, self-sufficient and really do something that would be impactful. She's no longer here, but I think my involvement with telemedicine, especially during this pandemic, would make her proud. And she would definitely see the impact that telemedicine in particular and her daughter are having with the world right now. But I got into medicine. I don't want to say it was all because of her. I never felt pushed into medicine, but certainly growing up, we lived about a mile and a half away from the hospital where she worked. I spent some summer vacations, working there, sick days, working at the hospital, dropping her off after church, things like that. So it was a really big part of my life and also got to meet a lot of her friends who happen to be physicians as well. So um, I think once I was in college and had to decide what I wanted to do, I realized, you know what, I, I can't uh, you know, fight this anymore. I love science. And so medicine had my interest. I graduated Gosh, so long ago now, but back from medical school, um, I graduated in 92. So I've been doing this for a little while. <laughs> yeah, but I really, I do really enjoy family medicine because I get to see all ages. I love children and elderly alike, and I feel I can communicate well with people. So family medicine seemed like a, an easy selection for me. That, that's, that's wonderful. I, actually, I didn't know that about your mother being an endocrinologist as well. And congrats, by the way, to your oldest for just graduating college. I'm sure that was, was that earlier this year, like in the heart of COVID or? It was, yeah. He graduated in May. And I think there was disappointment in the beginning, but it ended up being memorable. And he and his group made it, you know, they made the best of it. So uh, he, now he's working. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, good to hear that uh, I was able to find placement in this in this economy. So, shifting gears, like so, so you finished med school, you got into family practice. How did you decide to join Amwell? Can you tell us about that story? Oh, absolutely. It's I think it's fun. I mean, it's fun for me to remember this. When I first graduated from residency, I worked in a city. I grew up in Philadelphia. I worked there with a big health system for a while. My husband is also a physician. He's an anesthesiologist, and he was deciding, okay, it's time to get out of tertiary care and let me not do all these open hearts and things like that. So we looked into um, a rural area and we moved to a 
very rural area in Southern Maryland, actually, and uh, raised our kids here, which was fantastic. And I went from this big, you know, teaching hospital with a lot of, you know, the city um, support to now very rural, private practice, just the two of us living in a county where we don't even have all specialties. And a lot of the people who live here, they don't want to go out of the county for their medical care. So to say that I was doing a lot was an understatement. And I really enjoyed it. You know, I would even go to the post office or the food store and see some of my patients. So it was really a fun adjustment for me and really very meaningful. And then in uh, 2010, my partner realized, you know, we're not making any money. And if anything, we're losing money. I can't do this anymore. And some big medical institutions were approaching us saying, hey, can we, you know, buy your practice? So 2010, we were absorbed by, you know, corporate medicine and things changed. And I wouldn't say that it was a situation of burnout at all. I wouldn't say that I was frustrated. I still love my patients and I love going to work, but it was changing. The practice was changing in front of our eyes. And some of the you know, warm and fuzzy stuff we did wasn't really tolerated in, in corporate managed care at the time. So I think I really saw this with my geriatric patients. They were getting sent to the ER rather than the phone calls coming to me because I didn't have any more visits available. They were not happy. And I was trying to think, gosh, how can I grasp, grab these geriatric patients who really just need more touch points? You know, they just need a phone call. They need a reassurance. They needed eyes on them. It wasn't as if they needed a big in-person exam. So I had been hearing about telemedicine at the same time. This is about 2012 now. So we're through EMRs and we made it with that. I approached my medical lead, um, the medical director at the time and said, Hey, I've been hearing about telemedicine. What do you think? I'll raise my hand and be the Guinea pig. And they pretty much laughed at me. They're like, not yet. You know, we're not ready for that. And what do you want to do with that? Anyway, it was a pretty interesting response. I, however, went home one day from work and I'm not kidding in the snail mail in my mailbox was a envelope from a recruiter looking for people who might be interested in joining American Wealth. Well, I got on the phone that day and why not, you know, and I called within, I want to say it was a half an hour, the CMO, who is my boss, Peter Antal, called me right away and we had a fantastic conversation. So when you ask what really did it for me, I, the the energy that I I felt through that phone line, you know, through, I don't want to sound hokey, but it's the truth. The energy that Peter brought with him, the vision that he had and the owners of American Well had about how to be there for, to provide care to people who couldn't get care. I mean, that is really the mission. If they want a doctor, they should be able to see a doctor, you know? And I thought right away about these geriatric patients that I just couldn't keep in my practice. They were getting sent to different providers and things like that. And I said, you know what? Uh, I'm interested. So I, I overlapped with my brick and mortar practice for about three months and then decided, you know what? I'm all in with American Well. And part of the reason that I did leave the brick and mortar fully then was because there was a lot to do with respect to the regulations. And at the time, I was there were only 13 states that allowed telemedicine visits. And I wanted to be part of that. You know, it was really almost like energizing to me in that I learned this whole new tech piece. I was still providing care and I learned all this regulatory stuff, you know, how how much work it took to get a state to allow telemedicine visits. And I faced, you know, boards of like from Arkansas and Louisiana and Mississippi, you know, I faced some pretty tough scrutiny trying to make my case for why I wanted to do telemedicine and why they should allow telemedicine in their state. So it was fun to sort of be on the sales team, if you will, for Amwell and get these states on board. And now look at this, you know, 50 states and, and 
hopefully continuing in, in great fashion right now with being able to provide care for patients when they need it. I mean, that's really the bottom line here. So a long answer to your question, but that's how I got into Amwell. And I'll tell you, I've enjoyed it tremendously. And it still periodically will cover for patients in my community. I'm sorry, physicians in my community who are on vacation and they might need a little bit of help. But really, I'm 100% now doing telemedicine and 30, 30, 30 hours a week, I see patients and about 15 hours I work with administrative things and sometimes more during COVID. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating. I'm sure you're really happy that you open up that mail. I think a lot of us you know, are used to getting so much junk mail and open up a credit card or as a physician, I know you get tons of recruiter email, you know, messages. All my friends from Hopkins Med where I was in med school are telling me about this. And so it's, it's almost like a universal sign or sign from the universe about that. So one of the biggest challenges I hear about when people try switching to telemedicine or virtual care is, is developing website manner as opposed to just bedside manner, what are some of the you know differences and, and how is you how are you training clinicians who come onto your platform to to have good website manner? Yeah, I am I am one of the physicians who trains new new providers. So I love talking about this. First of all, I think it's important to to the word difference. I I sometimes I pause on that because when it comes to the care that the patient is given, the quality of care, there should be no difference. And at least I'll speak for myself and the people I train, you need the patients to understand there is no difference, you know, and and give them that confidence in the care you're providing. So how do you do that? Well, you don't think that it's any different than the care you would provide in person. Now, certainly, you're not gonna be able to touch them and put a hand on their shoulder. Maybe we shouldn't be doing that anymore anyway, right? You can still impress upon them how much you are listening to them. And being in med school, you know, I think it's 82% of diagnoses are made with history alone. So do we really need all these diagnostic studies that, yes, help us define a differential diagnosis? But in the beginning, you know, we're there to listen. And I can do that so well through a video, you know, and how do I get patients to understand that I am listening and that they're getting something just from me focusing on them? I train providers to first and foremost, confirm that the patient can see and hear you clearly. You know, they, many people are first time users and they're anxious about it. Gosh, can the doctor see and hear me? You know, am I holding the camera properly? And, you know, meanwhile, it's like right under their nose or something. So reassure them. I see and hear you clearly. I see that you're calling today from New York. Is that right? You know, get them to interact. And then, you know, ask, can you see and hear me? See and hear me clearly as well. You know, both ends have to feel confident with the connection. And once that has been made, you know, again, that open-ended question that we were all taught to ask in medical school is, you know, tell me about the reason for the visit. And what I do is, you know, I really, I sometimes I lean in, I lean into the camera. I sometimes fold my hands so that the patient can see she's not distracted by anything else. You know, it's not as if I'm typing right away, at least I'm not taking notes, I'm listening and, and nodding and, and all those things that we were taught on how to do a, you know, a good, be a good interviewer and be a good listener as well. And then once they're finished talking, you know, hone in on really the reason the, the things you're listening for that need more information, you know, if it's a sick visit, pertinent positives, pertinent negatives, that sort of thing. We are right now at an urgent care, primarily urgent care platform. So it's a lot easier to focus on that one thing that's in front of you. Whereas in the office, you know, we tend to ask more, you know, how's the family? Did you close some gaps in care? Not that we don't do that online, but you're really focusing on that visit in front of you. You're not distracted by a knock on the door from your nurse, you know, or 
you know, someone playing in the room, though sometimes that can happen on video as well. So really taking the time to train doctors that you need to reassure the patient, make sure they're in good lighting. If there is something that isn't allowing for a good visit, let the patient know. You know, I think a good example of that may be someone who calls in with a rash. We all know it's good to have natural lighting for that. Ask them to move to the window. And patients are, what's so, they just are so willing to make it be a successful visit. They'll really do anything you say, you know, within reason, but they will, they'll, they'll make it so that it's easier for you to get all the information you need as a provider. So that's the most important thing. And of course, be engaging, be compassionate, really empathize with them if they're struggling, especially right now. I mean, we're seeing a lot of people who are anxious, fearful, they're not sure, reassure them. And that really just takes expression. And then I always train them, you know, make sure that patient understands the follow-up. We are not a replacement for primary care or for your doctor. You still need that, that in-person provider for many different reasons and educate the patient as to why how we're different and why you still need that in-person visit. I think that's sometimes people come in thinking we can do it all, especially with refilling medications, but it's really up to us to explain the benefit and the limitations that we may have, you know, with online care. This year, obviously we've, you know, the reason we launched the podcast raise line is about how to increase healthcare capacity in the, in the midst of this pandemic and hopefully beyond so that we aren't as worried about, you know, flattening the curve in the future I'd love to hear, you know, how you, uh, your practice has adapted to COVID. How did you keep up with the evolving protocols for treating patients during the pandemic? And, and where do you see things going uh, next year? You know, th- that there's so many answers to that question, but I think the underlying theme is the fact that there's a team. I, I don't think any one of us could have done it alone. Clearly, this was a just a joining of all of us, not just the providers who came knocking on the door, hey, we want to help, which was great. And not just the providers who were already working like myself, trying to become more efficient and seeing as many patients as we could and working without taking, you know, vacation time and and working, signing on early and staying late. But the operations staff, you know, them being part of this team, how can we make things work more efficiently? How can we help you when you're seeing patients so you can see more, et cetera? And then, of course, the COVID task force, you know, how are we going to keep all of these changes? You know, when you think back to March, you know, in March, when we were telling people they couldn't get tested unless they met some criteria or unless they could find a testing site in their small town or their big town to now, Pretty much anyone can get tested. They don't need those referrals anymore. They just need to know, hey, what do I do if I'm positive or negative? Or, you know, I I actually have something else going on. It's not COVID related and and I need help. So really that team approach. And so we normally meet weekly as a clinical group, the medical directors and other leadership but we were meeting probably every day and we had a COVID task force that was really just focused on COVID related topics, how we're going to disseminate this information to the practicing physicians so that we could all be providing the same standard of care, how we're going to work on our platform. You know, we have certain things that help the physicians with efficiencies and how are we going to get that up there? It, last week, it was different. How are we going to change it to be current this week, et cetera? And then working with a lot of our clients, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, we have a, a lot of clients, just to mention a couple, you know, Cleveland Clinic and, and Intermountain. What are they doing for their patient network, for their clients that, that we can help then disseminate and reach their members? That's what I'm looking for, members, reach their members the way they want us to. How can we get those patients into the channel that they want so they can then 
follow up with them accordingly, ensure that they got the testing done, things like that. So it really was just, you know, a huge umbrella and, you know, sieve into then when I click on with a patient and, and just knowing that the people who are working um, alongside of me are also doing the same thing. So the standard of care really was where our goal was and the team I can't say enough about us all. And we still meet. So we still have our COVID meetings every week, but we also have meetings outside of that, as you can imagine, where we're chatting, we're calling on the phone, you know, whenever there's something new that we're, we're discussing it. You know, vaccines are now the big topic. We had a meeting before this about, you know, what do we think about the vaccines? Is there going to be a way that telemedicine can help, whether it's with distribution or ordering labs or whatever? So we're, we're always trying to work together and what sort look forward to you know how we can best disseminate this information not just to the practicing physicians but also to patients when they come on i think that telemedicine has been well let's put it this way in the 8 years i've been working here in the beginning slow to adopt as you know in the last 6 months a huge adoption rate both by patients and providers. And I do want to just reference, you know, our recent provider consumer survey, just for some numbers for you guys. Physicians and consumers expect to use telemedicine more often following COVID-19, you know, than they did before the pandemic. In 2020, 22% of consumers and about 80% of physicians have a virtual visit this year, which is up from 8% and 22% respectively in 2019. I can speak to my own waiting room where, you know, I'm, I'm pretty busy. I have 29 licenses, but in the thick of, you know, March, April, I, w- I had 10 times that sometimes in my waiting room, you know, people who were needing visits. Of course, they weren't all just for me, but it was, you could see it. I could feel it. And people who waited sometimes an hour and a half to see me, they were just so grateful, <laughs> so grateful for the visit. I can't even tell, they didn't even mind waiting because they were at home. But more than that, they were so, especially most people are, you know, new to using telemedicine. At the end of visits, they would say, that was so much better than I thought. I wasn't sure what you'd be able to do. But, you know, here you looked at my throat. You were able to assess my lungs to some degree. You were able to give me advice. You know, we even try when we have time to close gaps. You know, did you get your colonoscopy? Are you up to date with your flu shot? Things like that. So, again, I think for people who have never tried it, whether they're a physician or a patient, once you try it and you realize the utility of this and and how useful it can be and how easy it is to use and how convenient it is to use, it it really is going to be, I think, here to stay. I also do want to mention this. Telehealth adoption is largely driven by an increase in scheduled visits across all specialties. So prior to COVID-19, the majority of our visits were on demand. But now it looks like, you know, for those who have a virtual visit, I think over 50% of them are reporting that it's a scheduled visit with their own primary care physician. Some are having like about 42%, I believe it is, a scheduled visit with a specialist they may have seen in the past who is now offering services. I know my neighbor's a gastroenterologist, and he tapped on my door one day and said, Mia, I'm seeing everyone, you know, virtually, you know, can I have some suggestions? And I'm like, well, can you do an endoscopy yet? (laughs) So the point is, even specialists were doing what they could to have touch points with their patients and reassure their patients, you're not alone, we can do this. We can't do that, but we're going to get you in there. And then even new specialty visits, I think about 13% of people, patients, were having a scheduled visit with a new specialist. So someone that they didn't even know. 
so not just urgent care, you know, now this is in a specialty care, which is really exciting to see. And I think that that is going to last. So I know I'm, I'm going on, I can talk forever, but I think we are going to see now that the adoption is there, it's that whole toothpaste out of the tube adage, you know, we're not gonna be able to put it back in, but people are going to realize even more than they had the usefulness and and what can and cannot be done, I think, through telemedicine. So we're we're probably going to see, you know, more maybe prescription refills. I'm using examples of things I see, more prescription refills, more triaging upper respiratory infections. Do they really need to come into the office or can we handle this with some advice and some education online? What about allergies? What about advice on skin rashes and and acne treatment? I mean, things that really allow for a good history taking, good follow-up and good video connectivity, and then save those office visits for people who really need those hands-on exams, you know, need to look in that ear, need to listen to heart and lungs, though technology is is might deliver something there soon. Certainly, I probably see one or two a month uh, ab- acute abdominal pain, which I think is an appendix. You know, they still will need to go in. But the point is more and more people having had this experience now through the pandemic, they're going to realize, okay, I can use telemedicine comfortably for these sort of things that are a little less high acuity, and then I'll know what to bring into the office. That's that's really, really useful. Thank you for sharing those statistics and um, and how, how you're seeing as a provider, you know, even your patients adapting and changing to that, as well as the gastroenterologist neighbor example is pretty fascinating. I know we're coming up in time. So my last question for you is, you know, given that our audience at Osmosis are primarily current and future healthcare professionals, what advice would you give to someone considering A, a career in healthcare, and then B, considering adopting or experimenting with telemedicine? Mm-hmm. I think there is no substitute for experience. So with telemedicine in particular, I think one reason that I excel at this is I like to talk to people, but more importantly, I, you know, I had been practicing for 20 years. Does it need to be that long? No. But for those who, you know, are, have medicine in their blood and they may be meeting people who are, well, I'll just give an example real quick. I have lots of friends who are in medicine who are saying, I'm not bringing up medicine as a career path for my kids. And I think that if that child is really intrigued by medicine and has that science in the, in the blood you've got to support that. And we need that. And, you know, there may be obstacles, there may be some failures, but that's how we learn and we grow from those obstacles and those failures and and successes, of course, too. But my point is that if you have this in your blood, you know, you go into medicine and you go through your training and get as much experience as you can. Maybe you decide you don't want to do clinical work and that's fine too, but your medical degree will be so useful, you know, in, in many ways. But so you're going to clinical medicine, I think you will start to get trained if you're not already in your residency in using telemedicine services, reaching out to your patients through telemedicine, doing longitudinal care in te- with telemedicine. So it'll be part of what you're trained with. And then later in life, you won't think twice about it if you want to do more of it or, or not, you know. Having said that, I don't think everyone is going to be successful with telemedicine. I mean, I know that I probably would not be a good eye surgeon, but you know, you know, your strengths and we, you know, it it is a short, pretty steep learning curve to be able to feel comfortable with this. But there are people who realize, you know, this isn't for me and that's okay. You know, we don't all have to do it. But I think for those clinicians out there who are skeptical about this still and are like, you know, saying, Hey, eh," I think they have to give it a try because I feel like I provide excellent care and can really pick up on things too that maybe a busy primary care physician using myself as an example in the brick and mortar 
maybe didn't hone in on or spend enough time on, but I can sort of see it differently because I'm really focused here. So it goes hand in hand. I don't think one replaces another. I think we can work together. I did want to say that with the future of medicine, just keep working through it. You know, uh, we grow with those challenges. And I think that you'll find a way to use telemedicine somehow, some way, you know, telestroke, teleradiology, there's so many different places that it fits in. But certainly, you know, primary care medicine, uh, urgent care medicine, this is a great way to augment the care that you get in the office. Well, I mean, the the uh, passion you have for not only telemedicine, but patient care is very clear, Dr. Finkelstein, in, in, in how you're describing it. So I'd really like to thank you for taking the time to be with us on the podcast today. And, and on behalf of our users, thank you for raising the line and increasing healthcare capacity as well. So happy to be here. Thanks for listening in. And with that, I'm Shiv Glani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line since we're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.